0: This is Joy Gilfill and host of I Change Justice, where members of the restorative community coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects and consequences on their family, friends and taxpayers. Listeners discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences discussed for taxpayer education and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice podcast, and I have Atul Dishmani here to interview today about civic changes and how things have been evolving and what he's been learning over the last year as he's been participating in and listening to some of our i change justice podcasts welcome to the call a tool thank you joy I'm glad to be here i have a right out the gate i have a question for you because we're coming up on our one-year anniversary of i change justice and when you started working with us at the restorative community coalition as a board member You came in with virtually no background in social issues and that's why you joined us. You wanted to understand it. Talk to us about what your adventure has been over the last year or two and over the last year listening to some of these podcasts. What does it matter that we've been doing this? Well,
1: um, part of what the RCC is doing is creating a community. And um, for community to function People need to know each other's stories. And the idea that you came up with to have these podcasts has opened up a wonderful opportunity for, for me in particular, and for all of us who are involved with RCC, um, either intimately or from a distance, to understand the stories. And, uh, well, in my opinion, that's a real gift.
0: So what do stories matter and what have you learned? Like, give us an example of a couple things that you've learned by listening to some of these stories because the stories are about the business of justice and about the people who are affected by the justice system. And why does it matter?
1: To be honest, the most important thing is to realize how awesome the people that are working on this particular mission are. And it's not just... RCC, there's people like this all over the country. And and obviously you've interviewed some of those people all over the country um, and around the world who are not accepting the principle of throwing people away. Who are not accepting that this problem is already in other people's hands and that, you know, capable, confident community leaders aren't going to solve this problem. So That's the biggest thing is to recognize that there are these amazing people who are doing things and who are demonstrating amazing results, both in the RCC or in areas very related to the RCC and working with the RCC. So that's just the biggest thing for me. And it motivates me. It motivates me to do my part.
0: Well, it's really interesting because as a participant in the system, as a volunteer, like that's what I've been doing for the last 13 years, I've been studying how does the system work and why does it exist in the first place? And how does it support our personal freedom? How does it support um, public safety, public health and wellness? Where are all these intersections? And over the year, just as being one of the primary podcast hosts, I've learned so much by interviewing and talking with people online, like publicly, about the issues that they've gone through. And at the same time, it's provoked in me the desire to want to understand how does the corporate and non-corporate systems work? How does the system of justice that works above the fold because it's a, it's a business, it's actually um, a whole economy And how does that trickle down and affect families and the people in the streets? And how does it affect people who are working inside the system? So how has it affected your ability to think differently when you serve on some of your other uh, commissions or in other projects that you're doing? Because I know that you've done project management, leadership. You know, you're an engineer. So talk about how this inner conversation with human beings about human problems that are created by systems that are just running on automatic, sort of, how has it affected your thinking around that?
1: Well, I'm seeing all of these people working in and around a big system and figuring out creative ways of engaging with that system to deliver human results. Um, the benefits of the people that are stuck or somehow tra- trapped or influenced by that system. And uh, well, that's true, and that's true across the board. Those lessons are relevant across the board in all kinds of different areas, including how we do public policy on things like broadband. Um, so it's been informative in, in that way as well, is that you got a group of people all over the country, not accepting the status quo and challenging it. For example, uh, the advocacy work that people like Sinead do has been an excellent opportunity for me to see that you can advocate for people in any system. And at the core, it's an understanding of what human needs are, community needs are, that as long as we keep that in our mind constantly keep that in mind reminding ourselves ultimately we're about serving the community's needs we can take even difficult systems i was going to use the word crappy but anyway even difficult systems (laughs) and uh and get the out and get outcomes that are beneficial to people
0: well i think that one of the biggest things that i've figured out and it's uh, been useful to be able to talk with you about what what are the things that hold people's hands tied in the who work inside the systems? Like they have certain rules and regulations and behaviors and ways that they have to conduct themselves in order to to stay within the lines of what's legal and what's not legal to do. And there's processes for passing laws and establishing systems and managing bureaucracies and hiring contractors. And then there's the laws that hold the contractors in their world or it holds the uh, police officers in their world. So understanding that everybody is living within a separate system, if you will, and a separate system of laws, actually, because during this last year, we've also gone through a huge constitutional crisis and criminal justice or criminal legal system questions around how civil society and the people who work with economics and money and paper games and the law, the word of law, the lawmakers, if you will, as different from the law enforcers, as different from the people who administer and and earn their living working with the law. That's really become a real contrast to what we've seen on the Eye Change Justice podcast. Because with the people we're interviewing on these calls, talking about the business of justice, from the it's almost like there's a process flowchart, and at the end, people come out the other side. If they get once they get processed into the system, and there's impacts and we don't talk about those impacts.
1: Yeah, the difference is I was thinking, Joyce, while we just while you were talking, I was thinking about there's care and there's aware. Uh-huh. And the people that um, you're encouraging are the people that care about the public and their public's needs and are aware of the system. And I think, on the other hand, there's people who are employed by the incarceration system or the enforcement system who care about the system and are aware of the public.
0: Right, but they're not... Here's another thing. We just did that, that regeneration conversation in September. Yeah. We held a week-long conference. Mm-hmm. And in the process of that we learned a whole other level of things that's going to affect us in the i change justice podcast in the coming year we're going to be talking a lot more about the intergenerational differences because even within those of us who care quote unquote or are working with people to help them deal with the system we've learned that there's huge differences between people who are of older generation. Or of the quote unquote upper class or the, the caste system that actually operates an economic system that's a, sort of above the fold of, of what's happening in the streets. And then there's people who live in the streets who have a completely different worldview because they're not operating in the same reality because it's the 21st century, because technology has changed the way we do business completely. It has. Can you share with us what you've learned from us about that conversation, especially since we've been talking to uh, some of the homeless people in the city of Bellingham and how they see the world differently? You
1: know, I'm relying a lot on the testimony of specific advocates in our community as it relates to that. So I have, some limited experience with people that are struggling with the system. But it's really, I'm going back to the podcast to understand more about what the individuals are um, experiencing, how societal changes, um, even in the last couple of years changing what they're experiencing.
0: Yeah, specifically some of the things that I've learned is that the homeless people today or anyone who is in poverty today, during crisis periods like this winter weather season, people were unable to get services or get help if you don't have a cell phone, and if you don't and access to where the information is on computers. So if you don't have a cell phone and you don't know how to use computers or websites very well, oftentimes people don't get notices, they don't get information. If they don't have a credit card or some form of plastic that identifies who they are or how to get money from the system in a, in a cashless method, like some access to certain information is required, there's some access to certain information it's necessary to have to have a card in order to get a key code or in order to use a QR code to get through a door, for example. So, yeah,
1: yeah, and, and I do have a specific uh, point on that point is that when I've listened to the podcast, I repeatedly um, and and the the advocates are working with people in the community. What I've gotten is that we are making the assumption that everyone is a quote unquote, consumer, meaning with enough financial resources, or other resources through family or whatever to buy their way into the support system that they need. Um, And I think we're increasingly discovering that the technology support that people need to be functioning members of this modern society, um, many people don't have. And I think we confuse citizen or community member with consumer. And, um, and we want everyone to be a consumer. Um, and that, that's an approximation, but it's leaving a lot of people off the list of community members who, who can't afford to provide, uh, and it's not expensive, who can't afford to be plugged in. But there's a, there's a significant gap between being plugged in and not being plugged in for many people in this community.
0: Well, it's interesting, consumer versus a user of the system versus a payer into the system. Like there are taxpayers who are paying into the system. There are taxpayers who are using and codependent on the system. There are taxpayers who are part of the system because their income is generated by the system. So that's a very interesting thing, and it's, it's become a lot more discernible to me, the very, very difference. For example, like when I was talking with one young man about what it was like to be homeless, and he was traveling through a city, and he couldn't get maps. They weren't out there. He had to have money to get a map because everybody uses Google. So if you don't have a cell phone and you can't use Google, how do you get anywhere? And the bus transportation doesn't travel in the same way, you know, and you you may or may not have the money to put into a bus system. And without maps, how do you go anywhere? I mean, it was interesting because he said he used this phrase, he said, if you don't have a card, money and a phone, you've disappeared from the world unless you end up going into the system as a consumer of government services, and then you become codependent on the on the system, or you become a user of the system as a producer of problems and a producer of a need to have medical treatment or services. It's, it was a very interesting paradox. How does this affect you as a politician, as a person who's having to think about these things? Because I know you've dealt with Planning, you sit on the stakeholders advisory committee, for example, that's working, that's desiring, intending to build a jail uh, based upon their planning specs, their needs as facilities providers. How does this invite you to think about these things differently? Well, uh,
1: the big thing that's... been focused on is that the effort of the uh, public officials in the county, uh, as part of the sheriff's office and the county administration and so on and so forth, are predominantly driven by by, a desire to improve facilities, have new facilities. And so one of the things that I'm trying my best to convey to the group is that facilities are not irrelevant. They are important for sure. However, they should be driven by the services we want to provide in the community and all of that should be driven by the community's needs. It should be a needs-driven approach and not the needs of staff and not the needs of uh, political leaders. It's the needs of the community that should be driving the process. So, that's what's Missing, uh, it's the pr- right approach to the problem. What what comes first? What comes first is a community needs assessment.
0: Well, yeah, go ahead. And when you're talking about community needs, you're talking about human needs. You're actually humans. not talking about the community as some cerebral thing up here that's an economic community or an economy or this. It's about what do humans really need relative to being free, relative to being healthy, relative to learning how to do the right thing at the right time in the right order. Right. So, for example, on the subject of mental health, if you ask somebody who's a
1: practitioner, they'll say, we need a place to administer drugs to people, sometimes involuntarily. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a staff and facility-driven need. Um, Practitioner, Driven need. If you ask the community, is that we need mental wellness. We need a support system that addresses trauma up front. We need uh, <laughs> we need housing. Housing comes first. You know, we need the things that prevent mental instability for people. So I mean, that's an extreme example I gave, right? But it conveys the point that if you're driven by communities' needs, you do things very differently.
0: Well, it's also important to understand that there's another layer, like like the automatic statement. I mean, we were part of the organization that was promoting the idea of housing first. And it's interesting that over the last 13 years that I've been around, I've watched how the story of what housing needs mean, Um. As it's evolved in the corporatized language because it's involved in real estate development and getting millions of dollars to be able to build the right kind of houses in the right kind of low income blocks in the right kind of neighborhood to do it right for the public or for the for the bureaucracy so that there's no liability. And so they're meeting these specs according to a a corporate conversation. And it's been interesting for me to learn that housing is not, in fact, what people need that are living with poverty and that are living with mental illness and that are living with constantly being hazed or chased around in the community because they're homeless. They have nowhere to live. They have nowhere to park their car legally. They don't. They don't have any place to even sleep in their car. They need shelter. They need shelter. They need a, a fair place to park their car. And this is nationwide. This isn't just Whatcom County, but it's been interesting for me to listen to people in Bellingham, to listen to people in Blaine, to listen to people in Everson and Linden and people who who have been living in Portland, right? Or people who have been living or dealing with people living in San Antonio, Texas.
1: And that's by asking people, right, Joy? I mean, you've asked people what you need and the outcome of that is, Don't criminalize me doing the normal things I do. For example, parking my car, don't criminalize that. Yeah.
0: If I have to go pee, don't criminalize me going pee. Especially when I'm one of the taxpayers who's paying taxes. And some people say, oh, if you're homeless, you're not paying taxes. That's not true. If you end up earning money and you have to pay for groceries or you have to pay for diapers for your kid or you have to pay for gas and all these things you're still paying taxes so regardless for
1: example i shared with you the story that uh i had some things to wash comforters that are too (laughs) large to wash in my own laundry room so i took them to the laundromat and i um saw lots of people at the laundromat busily working on processing their laundry all obviously all all their laundry, including stuff that would fit in a typical household washing machine. The reason that they're there, I talked to some of them, is because they don't have a washing machine. Right. And what I discovered is that if I do the math, they're spending ten times, maybe fifty times, if you think about things like fuel and the hassle and of of getting to the laundromat. What I spend to do a single load of laundry.
0: So how does that make any sense? How well, does wasn't, it wasn't the cost of one of those? I mean, wasn't it astronomical how much it cost to to wash a blanket?
1: Yeah, it cost me ten dollars per comfort.
0: That's incredible. That's incredible. And then they wonder why people have to end up throwing away stuff because it's it they can't afford to wash it and they can't afford to sleep in it. It's it's you know, when you really look at what it costs people to live, and if we lock up like during the winter last winter, we locked up a lot of the bathrooms. And yeah. the rest and the restaurants and the and the businesses were closed down and all the offices, the government offices were closed down, and people were supposed to call in to get information. Well, if you don't have a phone and you can't walk there, and our government services are all over the place and and it's freezing out and you need to go to the bathroom, Where are gonna go. And if you go and then you get caught going in public, then that's a problem. So, you know, it's like, it's like our lack of comprehension of what other people are doing causes us to create situations that are double binds. And then because people are afraid to even talk about it, we can't even talk about it. So it's not talked about in the civic system. It's not talked about rationally because it's preposterous to imagine that there's no place in town. When COVID was happening, there was no place to go to the bathroom.
1: Now I'm going to exaggerate here just a little bit because yeah. what I'm about to explain isn't true every day. Sure. But I would say it's true for most people many days. I will eat an extremely healthy meal that I prepare at home for a dollar maybe $2 in materials. And it's uncommon to be able to get a healthy nutritional meal for a person who doesn't have access to a kitchen, doesn't have access to any of those facilities at a restaurant for a dollar or two. In fact, one could argue that it's hard to do it for $10 or two, frankly. Mm -hmm. So, that's, that's a problem. So it doesn't have to be illegal to eat. Luckily, we don't make it illegal for people who are almost to eat. Not yet. So the thing isn't just uh, legal penalties for infractions. It's the financial burden that people are carrying that's inordinately higher for people that are not plugged into the system as opposed to people that are.
0: Yeah, I also discovered that some of the people who are living in the streets, the reason they don't want to go get government services is because once they get government services, then those government services require them to go here and then to go here and then here and here and here in a particular order. And the time horizon of someone who's living without access to things is really short, your ability to focus on what you have to have if you've if every day you're looking for a place that you're gonna sleep safely and warmly or with shelter and without worrying about your stuff getting taken from you or the police chasing you off. I mean the the plight of the person who's being chased around in the street just simply because they have no money and no place to call home is extraordinary. And I had never thought about the fact that, you know, when you're living with a car and you have a driver's license or a license of any kind, and you have a credit card, your time horizon for what you need changes dramatically. So you can actually plan in advance and know where you're going to be in advance and know who you're going to go with and what what your needs are going to be when you go to those places. So These are all relevant to when we're talking about planning for community safety, community-wide, not just county jurisdictional safety or city jurisdiction safety, but I'm talking whole systems, your whole community is part of this safety net that people live within. And there's multi-jurisdictions and there's multiple laws and there's multiple departments and there's multiple issues that bury people under this mountain of paper and rules
1: and they i think the point that i want to highlight that you made that um is extremely potent is how the challenges stack up Mm -hmm. um so for example uh, let me talk about my experience sure uh i can do things that are difficult but when i do things that are difficult I rely on a lot of support systems. For example, I bike commute. This time of year, that's kind of difficult. But I have a place to wash my clothes that get sweaty. I have multiple sets of clothes that I can put on after I get sweaty so that I can attend my meetings, so I can warm back up again. I have lots of good food to eat when I need it, where I need it, so I can Handle the exposure to the elements that many of our houseless people are experiencing. But I rely much more heavily than the average consumer on other support systems. Meaning, I rely much more heavily on having a warm house to ride to or have a warm place to, uh, if I'm coming into town, to go to. Because When you get cold, you need to warm back up again. Nobody discriminates against me. I I would say mostly not. (laughs) Nobody discriminates against me for showing up uh, to a meeting or an event on a bicycle. So I think I have still completely no idea how difficult it is without infrastructure because I have moments of of difficulty and uh, experience in my life, but it's not at all the same to know that you don't have any of the support tools that you can rely on to make up for the difficulties you have. And that's the situation that I think a lot of people are experiencing. It's stack-up. They're getting it from multiple directions, and there's no give in their system to make up for where they don't have support.
0: Yeah. And you also have a telephone and you also know how to access all the weather channels and know how to get information. And if you if your bicycle breaks down or something goes wrong, you have backup support systems and people who could come pick you up and take you wherever you need to go, probably. Well, I, I
1: will take an Uber. I don't rely on other people for that, but I can I can afford to take an Uber or
0: a, that's, or a Lyft. That's the point. You can call somebody and use money to help get you out of any pickle that you end up in
1: or I've been in I've had really uh and since I started in 2014, I've had really important meetings on one or two occasions which I couldn't attend. and so because something happened, I had a flat or some, some something that was a debilitating problem that kept me from making the appointment. Sure, and I could call the person and I wasn't going to get punished right for missing the time slot
0: yeah it's been really interesting one of the women that i've interviewed in the past that i haven't and from what i understand people get punished
1: when they don't make their time slots when it relates with the support system from the government
0: that's what i was just gonna say this woman that i have not yet interviewed because she's not completely out of the system yet and it's dangerous for her to talk because she can get punished okay she was in the system We were trying to help her with the system, but she lives outside of the county, outside in the far uh, nether regions of the county. I had another one similar that was living in another in King County and one that was living down in Skagit County. And when you start, when you end up in the system and you end up in the court system and they put you in probation or they put you into, you know, regular um, urinalysis testing, or they put you through a drug program or they want you to be at court every single week for a period of time or whatever it is, those appointments are rigid. And oftentimes the courts will put them at a time where the bus doesn't travel. Like if somebody has to be at court or, or go to a a course or a class or meet some regulatory demand in the morning and you live in Sumas or you live in Blaine, maybe you can, and maybe you can't get a bus to town in a reasonable period of time. Sumas, for example, can take a very long time to get to town. And if the bus is running late, or if you call for a taxi to be able to get you to town because you've got a DUI and you can't get a driver's license and there's no one producing, there's no guarantee that any of those services are reliable and it could cost people, you know, 60 to a hundred dollars to be able to get to some of these places. And and it's astronomical. And when you try to talk to the probation department or you try to talk to one of these groups where you're supposed to log in by a certain time, if you miss it, you are dinged. And it can create violations that throw you back in the system extraordinarily hard. So yeah, these are, these are difficult things. So understanding the human needs is what we're talking about. We need to take a break for a moment and we will be right back.
2: Are you a member of Patreon.com and enjoying our podcasts? As a patron, you can support the production of the I Change Justice podcast series. You can also support the Restorative Community Coalition, get our news, updates, and access to our digital training programs downloaded directly to your email address on a regular basis.
0: So welcome back, Atul. I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about What happened to people emotionally over the last couple of years? People were basically put in lockdown. People have been experiencing unable to go to funerals, to go to weddings, to go to events. They weren't able to travel as as freely. Many people in the community, business people and leaders and people who used to run groups of organizations that created social ballast if you will the the support for the community to be able to 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 come together and help each other a lot of those things disappeared that I
1: i really like the word you use ballast because um it's that kind of uh support that allows you to weather you know shifts in the wind that are constantly occurring and uh the loss of that really makes people more vulnerable. So, yeah, so to a- answer your point is that, yeah, we had a couple years of, and we're not completely out of it Mm-mm. because it's affected like where we are today is now informed and affected by the COVID crisis. There's more division in our community because of it, because there was a new issue, which we could have different opinions on. And unfortunately. Differences of perspective then also uh, fed a uh, division, a cultural division among people, which um, has made it more difficult to work together. Uh, and then the people that were supposed to be all trying to support, we stopped supporting them in very significant ways, as, as you pointed out, in some very, very significant ways, including not having Im- what one would consider access to essential human services for just being able to live and not die. Um, and frankly, some of those people died mm-hmm. um, because of the la- loss of, uh, or the lack of support. So... Something else that it did is that it challenged the idea of the community's needs coming first, because what happened during the pandemic was very top-down. Yes, it was. We didn't ask people who were, for example, we used the term essential workers, right? We called a group of people essential workers, but we didn't treat them like they were essential workers. We just told them they had to work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We told children they couldn't go to school. And on and on. This is all all top-down direction. And when there's this kind of societal top-down, it should be done sparingly. It should be done... When there's um, a serious challenge, and you could certainly argue that the COVID pandemic was a, it is and was a serious challenge, but regardless of whether you feel like we took too much action or not enough action, the fact of the matter is that kind of hierarchical top-down decision making that's not is, is by definition not community-driven. So when we have these kinds of national crises, we need to invest extra hard in reestablishing community-driven practices. So that's, in my opinion, where we're at today. We have an opportunity now to recognize, yeah, we had this crisis and uh, we could definitely could have done things better during the crisis. We absolutely could have done things better, but that was that, it's over. Now, how do we get back to thinking about our communities?
0: Well, the you know, gosh, you reminded me of so many of the things that I've been learning over the last three years, because we went into lockdown basically in 2019, 2020, right at the beginning of 2020. So we're headed into two and a half to three years. And actually, the homeless crisis, the emergency uh, disaster type of emergency crisis issues were, went in in 2017. So, in some ways, the authoritarian corporation of Watcom County was in charge of the economy, the CEO-level management of money from the state and the federal government, because there's all these rules and all these different emergency declarations affect different groups differently. But in short, when we went under an emergency crisis, the Sheriff's Department, and the county executive and the county prosecutor become the top three law enforcement officials in a community, and they control the money game, they control the law, they control the economics of movement, they control the rules, whether you open or close buildings or gates or, you know, jobs or industries, they control, like, sure, many people will blame it up on the, on the, count, on the governor, but that was an administrative choice that we were making at the state and the federal levels to declare these states of emergency because that allows more federal dollars to flow to different places, more state dollars, more rules. So there's all these economic rules that throw into place, but they're controlled by a military hierarchy, military style hierarchy. So, and then the public was not allowed to speak about any of these things for a very long time. So people in a way, now I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just looking at the reality that people in a way were held hostage to a system. The system was held hostage to federal dollars and money that was held hostage to a military and freedom and protection of our community system. So there's systems stacked upon systems that stacked upon systems. And the problem is, is that the human beings at the bottom who were having to live by all these rules we were basically locked in our homes in a in a way sort of imprisoned by our economy and by the rules of the road and the authoritarian patterns then we had grieving and we have trauma so we couldn't deal with that and then when we went out and we did get we had jobs and maybe you were an essential worker and people were then told You're a bad person if you do or if you do not get vaccinations and you could work or not work based upon whether you had vaccinations. And all of those things become personal. They become judgmental often. And people ended up developing like a cold response, like I can't get triggered. It's too much stress. Plus, we had federal political issues going on and we had violence in the streets from George Floyd, from the police violence from the January 6th event, from all the constitutional crisis and the lawmaking crisis. So our entire safety net of believing that we're safe in America, our belief systems were shattered. You add all that trauma up, sustained trauma, sustained emotional, economic, civic, social, personal, family trauma, sustained trauma for three years, My research directed me to start studying the effects of authoritarian trauma. When the people you believe are your provide safety for you become, in a way, your hostage taker or your controller or your dominator, people mm-hmm. have started to feel things like Stockholm syndrome. But we've never been here before. We haven't had three years of sustained trauma in America like this. So, we just now released these these uh emergency declarations. November first was the first day,
1: yeah, in maybe.
0: almost three years that we've been free so allegedly so i'm not I wouldn't say that um
1: that there's never a reason for declaring war um but I wish we'd declare war a lot less <laughs> uh because if we declared war a lot less uh we could have a more robust and healthy underlying system that didn't need the declarations of wars every time, um, either a health emergency or some other emergency arises.
0: Yeah. We've also Mm -hmm. had the disasters, the, the flooding and the fires and.
1: Right. And so I think there's, there's a healthy argument about when we should declare war. And I, I don't want to, uh, say that, uh, Resolve that today or on the, in this podcast, but I do think that there's probably a very high le- high level of awareness that when you have um, hierarchical command and control type of um, regimes come into play, that work needs to be done afterwards to heal the community. I think I don't think there's a lot of disagreement about that you need to heal people after they have d- have had to go through uh, military service or that you need to heal people after they've been through a war. Um, so I think we need, there's a, s- a similar level of healing on the other side of this COVID crisis that needs to happen. I'm not sure it will um, to the degree that um, I'd like, but um, I think it needs to happen. We have a lot of, like I said, a new political kind of divide that happened. That's, causing people to call each other names or otherwise be antithetical to each other, to not be open to each other, family members to not be open to family members over, over, um, this crisis. And that's a problem. And so I think we need healing and that's at the, at that, at the family level, we need healing at the relationship between government and the public too. Because, the relationship between the government and the public has also been strained by this this uh, command and control, hierarchical, uh, driven battle um, to try to control a, a disease.
0: It's almost like civic restorative justice. We need that. I've not put those words together before, but restorative justice in the law and justice system, in the criminal legal system, as many people are talking about it today, Is where the perpetrator and the person who got hurt, like the person who caused harm and the person who was harmed, get to talk together to resolve differences for the purpose of healing whatever happened and getting restitution or getting accountability or getting, you know, trying to restore people to the best possible condition, you know, after something unfortunate happens. So that's the basic philosophy behind restorative justice. But in this particular case, we have civic violence that has happened, like a civic collision. We've had economic costs. We've had personal violence. We've had authoritarian violence, like when the city and the county were not allowing the public to even speak at at council meetings. And then there were people that were bullying each other and yelling at each other after the uh, event on January 28th in downtown Bellingham, where four law enforcement agencies came in and shut down the, the Camp 210. There was a lot of emotional violence that went through that. And when we've never done a, any kind of a restorative or healing process from that, and that deeply traumatized our entire civic heart. And that was right in the middle of this three years. And so without having those community conversations to bring healing, restorative healing to our community circles, it's really hard to repair those relationships and rebuild the trust that was lost over this last three years. Um, So that's an interesting idea. How can we restore community needs and how do we bring back the, the conversations between different groups of people who may have gotten angry or mad at each other over things that were not directly relevant to what was going on between those groups. So we've had civil unrest and cultural violence and all these things. So I guess we've got some healing to do. Let's take a break and we'll be right back to uh, have the next segment with Atul Dishmani helping us diagram and talk about the uncomfortable things we're dealing with as civic leaders in the aftermath of three years of uh, i'm going to call it civic domestic violence if you will because it's not like anybody intended it but we still ended up in a mess where a lot of people got hurt so let's take a break we'll be right back
2: thank you to our donors whose contributions help our clients directly You can see the sponsors list and the names of donors and members who are publicly recognized on our website at therestorativecommunity.org. All contributions are appreciated. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, volunteer, donate monthly, or leave a legacy gift by clicking on the donate button.
0: So let's do a different shift because we talked about the problem. We've talked about the emotional traumas that people are dealing with. We've talked about the challenges for people who work in government and people who work in first responder worlds and people who work in the streets and the effect on farmers and businessmen and these different people. Let's talk about what is a pathway forward? What's a new path forward that all of us could embrace and start working with so that we can rebuild community connectivity. We can build a web of relationships that we can trust when the world is not, I mean, it's not going to go back to pre COVID. I mean, we're here now and we have to move forward in the 21st century with technologies and systems and things that have changed. How do we move forward? Do you have any thoughts about how that, how we could do that?
1: Well, one of the things that is really important is action needs to be local and community driven. Yes. Ultimately, government is here to empower people. Uh, That's something that we sometimes forget.
0: Yeah, that's the ideal. That's why we have government in the first place. We wanted to share the load and help each other and deal with crises and deal with issues as a community. We started, we, you know, I thought about that one time, a tool that we as people naturally do want to help each other. That is a normal thing. And we brought a lot of these government things together so that we could share costs and help each other through growth cycles.
1: And that kind of philosophy that government is here to empower people is is what has driven multiple movements in history, in American history, and has produced really good fruit. So one such example, uh, you know, Joy, I'm a commissioner with the Whatcom PUD. Public Utility District. Right, and the Public Utility District and Public Utility Districts in Washington State exist because of the Grange Movement.
0: What's the Grange Movement? Explain that to our listeners.
1: The Grange Movement was a movement driven by rural America, and in the 1900s, most of America was rural America. And rural America was saying, we want to more fully experience this democratic experiment. And the most relevant thing for them was we wanted the infrastructure so that we can be powerful so that we can be potent and have control over our own future and at the center of that was electrical infrastructure and as electricity was becoming A very big factor in urban centers and investor owned utilities got started. All the opportunities were in the cities, but the Grange movement saw that we have to create that same kind of infrastructure to support rural America. And that started to happen, but it was going at a snail's pace as it relates to rural America. So they pushed for the creation of public utility districts that would be publicly owned and that would be responsible to serve the needs of the public. Now, there was for sure some federal support and funding early on for public utility districts. But today, and for most of the history of the PUDs, They have been self-funded. They're publicly owned utilities. And they have local governing boards, just like I'm on. And they are oriented towards the needs of the public. For example, in our community, when you talk about the urban centers, there is a significant amount of investment to deliver broadband services in the urban centers. But there is much, much less investment and a problem for services related to getting data out in the county. So the PUDs in the state of Washington and certainly our PUD here in Whatcom County have begun providing infrastructure to support broadband. These are the kinds of locally driven action with, on occasion, federal support that is responsive to communities. And that's the kind of thing that needs to happen much more. For example, it has been uh, more than once it has come up in the Stakeholder Advisory Committee and the ICPRTF and other venues. Progressive advocates have On multiple occasions, raised the concern over a centralized mental health system. That people in the community have to go through a single hospital in Western Washington to be uh, certified competent. And how important it is for us to have more decentralized, local support systems for people with mental health crises these are the kinds of things that we can see how beneficial it is to solve problems locally, because the more locally you are, the closer you are to the individual experiencing difficulty.
0: Well, and, and the faster it, you can move, the more agile you can be in meeting the individual needs because you actually can talk to the people who are experiencing it. So you know what actually would serve them and what wouldn't.
1: Yes, it's the reversed approach. It's reversing the approach from what we talked about earlier in the podcast, from hierarchical top down to services from top down. Meaning, ultimately, we're trying to support individuals. So the entities that are closest to the individuals are the smallest, most local entities. And those entities should be receiving support from the state And the state should be receiving support from the federal government. It's an inverted approach to delivering government and government support, which ultimately empowers the individual. And the more we empower the individual, the less they need the support.
0: So... Actually, we've got almost like a convergence, a perfect storm of systems that are colliding with each other in what I'm calling that civic collision situation. You've got authorities who have control over the human body. You've got medical doctors who, once you're in the system, you they have control over the human body. Then you have Technology and support services that come out that are that are controlled by the the monetary system, if you will. All these authorities and government agencies are paid for by tax dollars, tax dollars that are going into the system are circulating through the system, providing benefits to the people working in the system. But the people who are actually generating the revenue—this is interesting—because when I was in the 70s, I was graduating from a very local you know, high school in Colville, Washington, which is very Grange and 4-H driven at the time, the Cooperative Extension Service. I mean, a high percentage of my community organizing knowledge came from being active in 4-H. And because 4-H, it was technically funded by the government, the Cooperative Extension Service. We've got some in Whatcom County. But it used to be a big part of community and leadership and teaching civic accountability and responsibility and how to help each other in crisis. We had, you know, CPR classes at our our 4-H clubs. We had training and emergency preparedness. We had all these things happening that were free, right? And because the community, the teams of people would work together. We also had a lot, you know, we didn't have as much church movement there, but in the cities we had churches. So we've got these group natural watering holes and gathering places where we had civic conversations that we didn't even think about as being civics. Like I don't even remember learning much about what is civics and how does, I mean, I learned a lot about leadership and governance and how these things work, but in the city today, we don't have that much conversation because politics has taken such a dominant role in controlling what people think, because we've got two dominant corporate parties that are fighting with each other. So politics has also confused the conversation in the middle. So it's interesting how monopolies, authorities, centralized controls, and desires have sort of occluded or obfuscated or confused the real needs that we come together in community for, which is human connection and to help each other.
1: Right. I couldn't agree more.
0: And one of the things that you were talking about when you were talking about w- with regards to the government, you were also talking about um, dis- you didn't say the words, but disproportionate costs versus the ability to provide services. For example, with your band- broadband issue, you know, it does cost money to to lay wire, you know, across a large county space. So it's easier to consider, well, let's just make it, you know, non, not in the ground and let's just do 5D or whatever your conversation is. It looks simpler on some levels, but in fact, is it actually the best thing? So sometimes it's hard to look at long-term return on investment and visionary solutions when you're actually looking at cost savings and who's going to control the money and who's going to pay for it when you've got people who are moving in and out of communities as well you don't have the same longevity like in the olden days people used to live on their farms for for decades Fam- families would live on farms for decades people would live in cities in certain you know center you know certain places and now people are moving all the time and people are coming and going so we've got a lot of factors to consider when we're looking at revising how we do business in the future
1: we do have a lot of factors but as a principle it's fair to say that investing in infrastructure is something that falls more naturally in the role of government and It's a way of looking at the activity of government, which is investment driven. And why that's so important is it's easy for for government to make the mistake of creating dependencies and an infrastructure approach is not about creating dependency. It's about creating infrastructure, which allows individuals to be more empowered. Because the assumption is if you've got the right infrastructure, you're going to contribute a lot more than if you don't. And I think that's the point I was making earlier, is that when people can do their laundry, can eat healthy food, can have a, a ability to sleep well, then they will be much more abundant. And we all benefit from that. We benefit from that. All these people who volunteer to support people who need help, how do they do that? They do that because they've got a surplus. Why do they have a surplus is because they have the support structure they need. They've gotten it from their families. They've gotten it from, uh, their own gainful employment, their own, uh, infrastructure that they've accumulated over generations.
0: Yeah, and we've accumulated friends networks, and you've accumulated relationships, and you've accumulated uh, personal value, and people know what your contribution is. One of the early thoughts that I learned about when I was working with people who were reentering from prison was the providing just enough at the optimal point of frugal need. Like when a person comes out and all they need is three dollars to get on the bus to go somewhere or five dollars to get on the bus to go somewhere for that person, five dollars is isn't a massive amount of money because without the five dollars or three dollars they can't go anywhere they can't you know they really do need the bus tokens to a person who doesn't use buses and who you know, they have no idea that $5 contributed to the restorative community coalition can make the difference between someone making it to a family funeral or not. It can make a massive difference in whether or not they can stay alive overnight. Other people, you know, it takes $500 to make a difference in their life because the system within which they work is a completely different system. So, I just created an interesting triangle, a tool as a result of this conversation. I'm going to make a triangle that talks about infrastructure, that talks about the actual cost of what it costs to put money into the system, what what benefits come out that have ripple effects that compound. And then what is the internal rate of return in the center of that triangle as part of the equation that we could start with when we're talking about Taxpayers, because the taxpayers have to fund all this stuff. The government doesn't just float around outside here, you know. Making well, it does make money, but but that's another whole conversation. So, I think we've had a, a pretty interesting conversation here. Do you have a couple of last minute thoughts, Atul? Um, you've got a couple minutes here to close up. What do you? What would you like to close this conversation with?
1: I think the point I've been thinking about more than once during this call is that we need to recognize how much we do to, for people and why we do it I will to take a moment and say that our country our government on all the agencies that are involved with it, on many occasions do provide tremendous support for people and life-saving support Support. And there are shining examples all the time of everybody from police officers to ambulance workers on the front lines, to people in hospitals, public hospitals, and so on and so forth, of amazing contributions. And when we do those amazing things through each other, what drives that? is a sense of hope in the individual, believing in people. And to me, that's what an infrastructure-based approach to government is about. It's about believing that this gifting of public resources is going to empower people. And I think we have to get back to a situation where that's what we truly believe government is about, As about empowering people. And that that is uh, too often attacked as creating dependency. But, you know, the earth doesn't complain about us. Or maybe it is starting to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's trying to support everything we need. You know, it provides everything we need. And you know, we can replicate that kind of relationship. That relationship that um to provide people what they need so that they can live lightly. And that's really what a really <laughs> that's a whole nother subject. That's what a relationship with the earth should be. Take what we need for the earth. Not so that we can take more, but so that we can live lightly on the earth.
0: And so we can give back to the earth because just like what you're talking about, a lot of the people that you just mentioned that have done heroic things and life-saving needs, there's also thousands of people across this county and across the nation who donate their time and their life-saving services and their gifts. And there's no way to pay them back in the system as we have it. So building the viscosity and the interaction and the trade platforms, I think that's actually one of the things that I'd like to say at the end of this call is that learning how to trade equity, like sweat equity, together with monetary equity, together with resource equity, it's like learning to do trade value, value for value, and recognize what is regenerative what is revitalizing, what is nourishing, what actually supports life. And that ties right back into what you're saying, Atul. So thank you so much for joining us on the call today. And thank you, audience, for being present. And we'll talk to you on the next episode. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info@therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.